Good to see you guys. Great. I was a bit depressed last night, actually, because I was reading about names, and apparently this name Simon has fallen out of favor. It's true. It's true. So there are now only, this year, only 150 other little Simons running around. Isn't that sad? Don't you think that's sad? What a great name that's fallen into disrepair. And So, any parents that are having children in the next year or so, you know, I won't take it personally if you don't name your child Simon, but... So it's a bit sad, yeah, 150 little Simons. So apparently it peaked in 1974. That was the end of Simon. It was a downhill slope from there. And here we are. 1970s, so I was born. I was like right at the peak, and then. Anyway, this has got nothing to do with what I was talking about. I just wanted to share the share the pain. There are a few other names on there which I shan't mention who are in a worse state than I am. So, just let's put it that way. I'm not looking at you, you, and actually I didn't know about you, and I didn't research you, and but you can do that later yourself. So we are in our series Simplify, and last week we looked at uh, living a life in the Spirit. You can pick that up online. We talked about living in the presence of the Holy Spirit. What a privilege that we get God with us. What a privilege that we are never alone again. We talked about living by the produce out of the, whoa, out of the fruit of the Spirit, and we talked about living in the power of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit flowing through us. And... Um, you know, the Holy Spirit is wanting to do amazing things in our community this year. Am, am, I, am I right? Yeah. I just know He is. He's going to do. He's been doing things already. I, I talked about how last year, uh, one of the things that I, I found helpful was to ask Him, "What fruit is He producing in us?" You know, it's not about us working hard to produce fruit. It's about allowing Him to produce fruit through us. What fruit is He producing in us? And last year it was about patience, and I said. Lord, we've done that now, let's move on. Uh, so I asked him last week as I was speaking, I provoked you with the same question. What fruit are you saying to the Spirit? What fruit is he saying to you? What fruit are you asking him for in your life? And uh, I asked him that, and he, he said, self-control. I was like, Lord, there's a banoffee pie in the fridge, half eaten. Could we start after I finished it or before? Which, which should it be? But... So for me, one of the things he wants to do this year is, is self-control. So there goes that second chocolate biscuit, sadly. But, you know, what is, it, what is it for you? And, you know, this year, the things that he's done amongst us are amazing. I told you this. I'm not sure I did tell him this meeting, but there was about seven or eight years ago, we had a week where seven people opened their hearts to Jesus in one week. And it was, we'd never seen anything like it before. One lady, she was in gardening, I think it was. And as she was gardening, she felt God speak to her and she felt like she needed to give her life to follow Jesus. She'd heard a message about it previously, but resisted it as she's gardening. So she phones the church offices. The receptionist didn't quite know what to do. She said, well, you could come on Sunday. She said, I can't wait till Sunday. I need to do it now. I need to speak to someone now. So she came into the offices and met with someone and they led her to Christ. And there were seven in a week. It was quite phenomenal. And I, I felt the Lord say to me at the time, pray for what is extraordinary. Pray for it to become more ordinary. Because <laughs> it says in the Bible that daily people were being added who are being saved. And so I can't stop until it's daily. You know, that's where we've got to get to in every church in the nation and the world. So um, it was amazing. In the la last year, we had a week where 42 people opened their hearts to Jesus in one week, which was just amazing. <laughs> 42 people, and some on the streets, some on Alpha, some in our youth ministry, I mean, just all over the place. It was just this amazing, amazing week. I was going to say bizarre, but that's the wrong word, because <laughs> it's not bizarre. It should be ordinary. 
It should be ordinary, and we need to be praying for that. And I was so thrilled. And some you know, people would say, well, how many of those are you know, fully-fledged disciples? Well, not many, but you know, many of the crowds that responded to Jesus didn't come right the way through, some until years later, as far as we know. But the reality is, it's a change from where we were when people didn't want to hear about Jesus, now they do want to hear about Jesus. People then did want to hear about him, but didn't want to respond to him. Now they do want to respond to him. And the next step, of course, is for us to bring them to a place of being fully-fledged disciples, followers of him. In fact, actually, there is a shift in that already because last year we baptized four people who we met for the first time on the streets. So they had no other contact, met someone on the streets, and then have come through, got, went through Alpha or something, then got baptized, and they were baptized last year. That is good news right there. That is good news. Something is changing. Something is changing. And so I want to carry on that theme of uh, life in the Spirit in this series because what's foundational, if we're going to simplify and do the important things well, what's foundational is this, that we live as a Spirit-filled family. It's not just about my individual life as a spirit. It's about living as a spirit-filled family. And I don't know about you, but what I've observed is if I love someone, I love to learn about what they love. Anyone notice that? Yeah, that's why these kind of websites with what celebrities are doing and all of that, which of course I never look at. But if I were, I would see all of the things that they love and they love to eat and what they love to, where they love to go and what they love to watch. And you can learn about the people that you love. You can learn about what they love and you love to learn about what they love. You know, when you got married, I, I love to learn about. When Caroline drops in, oh, I love that. Or she says, you know, I love decaf hazelnut coffee. I, I love to learn about that. And so we have that frequently because we both love that and I know that she loves that and particularly when you become a parent you have kids or you have nieces and nephews you love suddenly you become interested in things that you had no interest in whatsoever anyone observe that notice that you you know I, I my, my daughter she was born and became a princess and I learned more about princesses and what they like than I ever wanted to know in my entire life. I found myself one birthday building a princess castle out of cardboard so that she could come through the doors of the castle. And, we, and I was like, how on earth, where'd you even start with that? So I got Richard Oliver, my friend is a graphic designer, and I tell you what, we built a rocking princess castle. Move over Disney, it was, I mean, he is gifted. Um, <laughs> move over Disney, so we built this princess castle, and it, and it was, I mean, it's, it's gone now, of course, we didn't keep it, but it was there, and I learned about that, and I've seen that with the boys, you know, I know more about Star Wars Lego figures, and the millions of them that there are than I ever wanted to know. The, the latest thing is cajons. Do you know what a cajon is? I didn't really care what a cajon was. Suddenly Ethan's like, I want a cajon. What is it? It's one of those boxes that you sit on that they, they drum. You know, it looks very uncomfortable, I think. But suddenly I'm learning about cajons and I never know. I didn't want to know about cajons. And someone's emailing me saying, you could build your own cajon. I don't want to build my own cajon. You can buy one from this and that and you've got to make sure this is right and that's right. And I'm like, ah, I'm not sure I've got headspace for the cajon world. But when you love someone, you learn to love what they love. You learn to take an interest in what they love because you love them. Well, that's what I want to talk about because, you know, Jesus said when he, leave, when he left the disciples, he said, you are going to have someone come not just to be with you but to be in you. The Holy Spirit is going to be in you. And so if he's moving in, I tell you what, we better learn what he loves. Do you know what the Holy Spirit loves? 
Do you know what he loves? Do you want to, do you want to know what he loves? Because if you want to make a home with the Holy Spirit, if you don't want him to be the disgruntled lodger who's not very happy with how it is on the inside, then it's, we need to know what he loves. I tell you, it's sometimes a little bit surprising what he loves. It's perhaps not what we think what he loves. This is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. One of his, we looked at the church in Galatians last week. This time the church in Ephesus, another significant church that he worked with. And imagine you were receiving this and you've got someone coming to live with you and he's writing to tell you what this person loves. And this is what he writes. Therefore, Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit. Bind yourself together with peace, for there is one body, one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. Verse 30, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he's identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, be tender-hearted, forgive one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Taking a step back from that passage and look at it as a whole, what does the Holy Spirit love? What does he love, the one who dwells with us? What, what is it that he wants this home that we're in to look like? The first thing he loves is he loves identity. He loves identity. That's what Paul writes, isn't it? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He loves it when people live out of who they now are. He loves it. He, there is nothing more uh, uh, pleasing to the Holy Spirit. When you talk badly about yourself, when you talk down to yourself, when you say, I can't do this or I can't do that, when you badmouth yourself, when you tear yourself down, when you beat yourself up, I tell you what, the Holy Spirit, it's like a, it's like a, a lodger upstairs who's listening to the, uh, the couple arguing down in the lounge. <laughs> you ever been that lodger in a house like that? I, you ever, I have. I've stayed and they're, they're going at it hammer and tong and you're upstairs in your bedroom thinking, I don't want to live here. <laughs> now the Holy Spirit will never leave us, but I tell you what, he is not comfortable. <laughs> Because he loves identity. He loves it when we live out of that place of identity. My, one of my sons some time ago, was, he was uh, at school and a new boy arrived. And as the, all the boys were go kind of gossiping about this boy and there was some stuff coming out that they didn't like about him. And my son overheard the teachers talking about this boy and realized some information that no one else knew, which confirmed a lot of the stuff that they were suspecting. And I was talking to him later, and, and, and I said, what do you do? He said, well, he said, I was going to tell him, he said, but then I thought, I don't want to be the one who starts the rumor. He said, I don't want to be the one who starts the rumor. There's a lot of gossip going on, and I really want to step out of that. I want to, I want to change that. I see what I was so proud of him in that moment. Because at, at young, though, that age, information is power. You've got the, that's why little boys are always like the latest thing and do you know this and do you know that and do you know that and do you know that and sex and do you know that and do you know that and sex? You know, that's what it's like in their world. Information is power, but he said, I don't want that kind of power. I don't want to ruin this kid's reputation. I tell you, 
He's living out of his new identity. That's how the Holy Spirit feels when we live out of our new identity. It fills him with such joy because of who we are. And let me just remind you, and you'll be familiar with this, but Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, masses, if you've never read it or studied it, you must. There's loads on our website about it. because It's such, such foundational stuff. But just let me remind you, Phil Wilthy wrote this, and it's just brilliant because he's brilliant. And I had to say that because he's sitting here, but I would have said it anyway, even if you were, you were out. <laughs> Block up your ears, Phil, and I'll say nice things about it. <laughs> This is just brilliant. Just let me remind you from Ephesians to a summary. Verse 4, firstly, I am loved. I am now the beloved of God. I am eternally loved child, which means I can give and receive love. Secondly, I'm alive in Christ. I was once dead in my sins, but now I'm alive in Christ. That means my life has new purpose, destiny, and meaning. I am known by the joy, peace, and the hope that I carried because I am now alive. I'm seated in heavenly places. Number three, verse five. Where Jesus is, so am I. I've been raised with Christ. My citizenship is now in heaven. That means I carry heaven's perspective wherever I go. I'm a releaser of heaven's blessings and a bringer of good news from the throne room itself. I am seated in heavenly places number number four i am saved by grace ephesians 2 verse 8 i've been saved from sin death and darkness i'm a living walking example that god is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in love i love that i'm a living walking example that god is compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in love number five i'm god's handiwork verse 10 i'm fearfully and wonderfully made by his hand I have purpose, destiny, beauty and worth because I'm his workmanship. This means I live a life in peace and I'm able to honour myself and honour others as God has made them. And number six, first, Ephesians 2 verse 10, I'm created for good works. I'm created as a bringer of the kingdom, an ambassador of the gospel. I'm called to be great through service and to make this world a better place because of Christ in me, the hope of glory. I am a his story maker because all of history is his story and I'm a history maker in my generation. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. You, well, I thought so anyway. Me and Phil agree. <laughs> I am alive in Christ. I'm a history maker. I'm his workmanship. You know, when you first see Goliath, you think, look at all that armor. When you understand who you are now in Christ, you think, look at that massive forehead. Something changes when you live out of your new identity. You've got this guest in your home, the Holy Spirit, and he loves it when you live out of this place. When you stop living out of that old place and start living out of this place, he loves it. And, and just to, to move us forward, you know, how, how, do, we, how do we do this then? Well, the, the words, the, the, the sense that the Bible often uses when it talks about identity is the sense of put on. Now, what I need is a, a, a guy's coat that is really cool. Who, I need a guy here who's got a cool coat, okay? That kind of you think might fit me. Uh, guy's coat, come on, I need a volunteer. Man's coat, you, you have, got a, have you got a cool coat? Ewan is very cool, so he will have a cool. Have you not? Have you got one? Oh, look at that. Thank you, Ewan. Look at that. You see, now I needed a new coat. Now, you see, this is, the, this is what I brought with me. Am I allowed to put it down, Ewan? Is that, is that right? Is that, okay. So. so I brought this coat. You see, I brought this coat. It's not really suitable, is it? If Caroline had been awake when I left this morning, she'd have said, oh, son, you can't wear that. 
This is it, you see. And so many of us live out of this place. And the scriptural sense is, take off. It's a choice, isn't it? Like when I go in, I went, looked in my closet this morning, and it was kind of dark, and I looked in there, and I chose this. And Karen wasn't there to help me. The Holy Spirit wasn't there to help me. <laughs> but I chose this. I took this, and I put it on. So often... We've been saved, God's changed us, but we go back to the same closet and we pull out the same old coat. And it's time to get rid of that coat and pick up the new coat, Ewan's coat, and put it on. Look at that. Now that's the coat I should have had this morning. Put on. Are you getting rid of it? I think it really does suit me. Put on the new coat. That's what it talks about in Scripture. But can I wear it for the rest of the message? Put on the new coat. Put it on. And when you see that list, you might look at it and think, oh, I don't feel like that. I didn't feel like a lot of that stuff in 2015. It's not about what you feel like. It's what about what you get out of the closet. What are you going to pick up in the morning when you walk and you think, yesterday, yesterday I picked up the wrong coat. Well, then don't pick it up tomorrow. Pick out the new coat and put it on and say, this is who I am. I'm going to live like this. And even if it means I put the wrong coat on every day and end up going home every night and thinking, I don't want to wear that coat again. Well, then try again tomorrow until you really wear this coat and own this coat. (laughs) (laughs) And this coat becomes yours. And you're never tempted to pick up that coat because this is now your coat. And it suits you, and it fits. <laughs> Put on the new coat. There you go, you, and you can have your coat back. <laughs> Ewan's got a real conscience thing now. Should I give him the coat? No, he hasn't. He hasn't, he hasn't. <laughs> Everything you do flows from who you are. Put on the new coat. You know, there's a story. I love reading stories to my kids. And Kaya loves to read, particularly my daughter, loves to read missionary stories. And um, we're always looking for, for, particularly she loves female heroes of the faith. And so we find all these, many of them I've never heard of. Their stories should have been told, but just because of the, they haven't been. Ida Scudder. I mean, I talk about Simon being a name that's out of favour. Ida, I'm sorry, Ida. I mean, she's dead now, so she won't mind. But Ida's not a popular name today. But I tell you what. Ida Scudder was a phenomenal woman of God. She was a daughter of a missionary doctor, lived in Vellore, India, hated it. She hated it. She hated the culture. She hated the food. She hated the poverty. All she wanted to do was move to the States, so she did. She moved there, got a degree, came back to visit her parents one day. There was a knock on the door late at night. There was a knock on the door, and a doctor, and a, and a, and a man was there, Will you, a kind of female doctor, come and help my wife. She's heavily pregnant, about to give birth, but it's not, it's not coming, nothing is going wrong. And she said, my dad can come, I'm not a doctor. My dad can come. He's like, I can't have a man see my wife in this condition. It's just not culturally. She said, if you don't, your wife's going to die. He said, so be it. He left. Another knock an hour later, same thing happens again. If you don't, my dad doesn't come and see your wife, she's going to die. So be it, it's just not our culture. He left. Third, about 2 a.m. now, third knock on the door, same thing. By the, she didn't sleep a wink the whole night. She was a mess by 7 o'clock the next morning. 
when she heard the cry, the cry of grief. And she asked her, uh, the servant in the house, what's happening? He said, three women died last night in childbirth. God spoke to her. She'd always said, I'm not a doctor, my dad's the doctor. She went back to the States. She got a, deg- a medical degree, which is very unusual for a woman in those days. She moved back to Valor in India to help the women of Valor. This is the end of the story. This is the last page of the book. It's been over 100 years since Ida Scudder returned to Valor to set up a medical clinic for women. Today, the Valor Christian Medical College and Hospital operates much like a small town. It has a staff of 5,000 people. It's 596 doctors, 1,545 nurses, and 183 teaching staff. The medical college, which Ida fought so hard to preserve, takes in 60 students a year, and she specified that a minimum of those must be 25 of those must be women. The various hospitals and clinics serve over 80,000 inpatients and 1.2 million outpatients. Each day there are 10 Bible classes held in nine languages and broadcast throughout the complex so that any patient can tune in and listen. Hospital chaplains visit and pray with 380 patients a day. In 2002, Indian Today magazine ranked the Valor Medical College as the top medical college in India. In 1900, Dr. Ida Scudder came to India with the modest goal of helping the women of Valor. Through her dedication and faith, she had left a legacy, the impact of which is still being felt every year by millions of people whose bodies are healed and whose hearts are touched. She put on the new coat. And we don't all have to start medical colleges in India to put on the new coat. Small or great, put on the new coat. The Holy Spirit loves it when you live out of your new identity. Because... Anything can happen. The things that he is dreaming for the world can happen through a people who put on the new coat and start to live out of that place. The second thing he loves is family. This is what Paul writes. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And then verse 3, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. What's he describing? He's describing community. He's describing family. The Holy Spirit loves family. Hang on, Paul, shouldn't you be talking about church planting and taking the nations and healing the sick? He gets to all of that. But when he's talking about what the Holy Spirit loves, the one who comes to live with us, he loves family. Because on that, everything else is built. On that, the foundation is the foundation for everything else. And the three words he uses are humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the foundations for Christian community. Humility means a lowliness of mind. It means a mind that's not pushing itself forward or puffing itself up. A mind that can celebrate when other people get what you thought that you ought to have. A mind that can cheer brothers and sisters on in Christ. Humility is a mind that says, I will serve God with all my heart, but I'll also applaud others who do the same. I'm not looking for status or promotion. I'm looking for Jesus to be glorified. Humility. And then he says it's a mind, it's a a family of meekness. You know that word meekness or gentleness is a word used of domesticated animals. It means strength under control. Is your strength under control? You might be able to out-argue everyone in this room. But I'll tell you what, there are plenty of people who can out-argue people who destroy family. They destroy family. They win the argument and they lose the person. What's the most important for you? Is it winning the argument or is it gaining a friend, keeping a friend, keeping a brother or sister in Christ? I've had to learn that lesson myself. It's about family. Truth is important, but truth divorced from family is just orphanness and aloneness. How is, how is your strength? Is it under control? And patience, bearing with one another in love. 
Do you pray for those who irritate you? Are you patient with the faults of others as you would like them to be patient with your faults? I'd love everyone to be patient with my faults. I don't want to be patient with anyone else's faults. Anyone else ever honestly feel like that? That's how we all feel. Be patient with me. But I'm not going to be patient with you. Why should I? You're not me. You know, that's the reality, isn't it? We want to live like that, but you can't build a family without patience, bearing with one another's faults just as Christ bears with us. You know, there's the story of Sadhu Sundu Singh, who one of our names, uh, Sadhu Sundar Singh, who's one of our rooms is, is named after. And he, was a, he got saved at 16 as a, out of a Hindu family, became ultimately a, a Christian missionary. But when he was training, he went into a, a school and they all, all the other Christian kids just, just mocked him and, because they'd, they'd all rejected their Indian culture, but he still, still wore all the sadhu robes, the orange robes and the turban, but they'd all wet, draw West, wore Western clothes. So they bullied him and mocked him. And then one day there's this story of where he was, went outside and he was sat by a tree. And one of his bullies came up behind the tree to kind of have a go at him. But then as he got close, he heard that, that Sundar Singh was praying. And so he thought, oh, I'll listen to this. This will be you know, some more ammo. But as he got closer and could hear, he heard what he was praying. Singh was praying for the bullies. And as this kid listened to this young man pray for the people who bullied and tormented him, he just broke down and wept. And he came round from the other side of the tree and said, I heard what you prayed. Please, please forgive me. And they became friends for life from that point. That was a provocation for me. If the people that I've fallen out with in various communities around the world and various places, and if those people could hear me pray for them, what would be the result? If the people that you fell out with in this church or you think, oh, I'll sit over that side and hope they sit over that side, if those people could hear you pray for them, what would happen? Do you even pray for them? The Holy Spirit would love you to join with him because he's praying for them. Even if you're 100% right, pray for them. Patience. You know, I've been involved and seen and witnessed many, many family breakdowns, church breakdowns, community breakdowns. But I'll tell you what, not once have people come to me and said, you know what, we've had this fallout and it's because we've got too much humility, gentleness and patience. You know, we've got this problem at work and our whole culture at work is just, you know, we're all fighting and it's just, there's too much humility, gentleness and patience going on. If only we could get some more of that, we would, less of that, then we would be fine. No one says that. This is the foundation for genuine community. Every family and every community, humility, gentleness and patience with one another. This is what we were born to be and the Holy Spirit loves it. Do you love him? Then love what he loves. He loves family. And then lastly, unity. He says this, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit loves identity. He loves family. But he loves unity. He, you, know, you know, a snowflake is this fragile, pathetic little thing but you combine it with other snowflakes and it'll stop a train. It'll cave in a roof. It'll stop traffic. Together, it has incredible power. There's this Peanuts cartoon, which I love from years ago, where, uh, you know, the Snoopy thing where uh, uh, Lucy comes up to Linus and says, give me control. I want to I watch the show that I want to watch on TV. And he says, why I'm watching TV first? She says, because of these five fingers. Together, they are in, individually, they are insignificant. But when I combine them together, they make a powerful force which is unstoppable. <laughs> and Linus says, 
all right, what channel do you want to watch? <laughs> and then he looks at his own hand and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> There's something about unity that is so critical for us. Notice it's not necessarily the unity of agreement. We don't have to agree about everything. We, you, know, you learn that pretty fast leading a church. You know, the, the decisions that we make as a team, not everyone is going to be happy with. That's the reality. Some people want the worship longer. Some want it shorter. Some want it quieter. Some want it quieter. Some want it louder. Some people want more preaching. Some people want less preaching. Some people want longer meetings. Some people want shorter meetings. Some people want more groups. Some people want less groups. Some people want us to talk about money more. Actually, there are a few of those. Some people want us to talk about money more. Some people want us to talk about money less. Some people want communion every week. Some people don't ever want to do communion. Some people would love us if we had an organ at the front here. And some people would hate us if we had an organ at the front here. Some people, some people even get vocal about it now. Some people, some people would love it if we enlarged this building. And some people think, why do you spend so much money on buildings? And some people would love us to focus more on the kids. And some people think we focus too much on the kids. I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me. You know, we knew what we signed up for when we took this, but the reality is it's not the unity of agreement. If you join a church where everything happens that you want to happen, I'll tell you what, you're in a very small church. It's a church of one. I lead the church and not everything happens that I want to happen. (laughs) That's the reality. We're a community. There's going to be diversity. There's going to be disagreement, but we can still have the unity of the Spirit. We can still, and Paul goes further than that. He says, fight for it. Fight for the unity of the Spirit. That's the word. It's a strong word. It's not a passive word. It's a robust word. It's a fight for the unity of the Spirit. Because those snowflakes together are an unstoppable force. And they wreck traffic every year. And we might have some soon. And they cave in roofs. And they stop trains. Together, they are individually, they are insignificant. But together, they change the world around them. When the snow comes, everything changes. And we are called to be like that. You know, share your opinion. Talk it through. But ultimately, someone said this, in essentials there's unity, in differences there's liberty, in all things there's charity. Do I have to be friends with everyone? You don't. You really don't. There will be people in this church that are so different from you, you will not be friends with them. I'll be honest about that. It will be a a Christian pseudo language if I said you had to be friends with everyone. You do not have to be friends with everyone, but I'll tell you what, you have to be at peace with everyone. That's the difference. The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What that means is you might not be friends with everyone, but if you've got that bitterness, that angst, that on the inside towards someone then sort it out because that's not the bond of peace but if you sort it out and just like do you know what we're different we'll have to agree to disagree on that then you've got the bond of peace the unity of the spirit the bond of peace there's this National Geographic photo from years ago of two saber-toothed tigers it's a a fossil remains that they're not real they're not alive today Jurassic Park is not real sorry to break that to you and the, to quote the article, it says this, one had bitten deep into the, bone, the leg bone of the other. His saber tooth was so long that it could not then be removed and they were locked together in death. One died from the wound, the other died from not being able to get free from the one he had killed. 
in that picture of so many churches, in that picture of so many communities, so many families, one died from the wound, the other died because he was locked together with the one he had killed. This is why the Holy Spirit loves unity. Because he recognizes who we are when we are united. He is an unstoppable force that will change the world. When we have patience, humility, and gentleness with one another, when we live out of our identity, this is who I am in Christ. When we challenge one another, I'd urge us, don't just say stop this or stop that. Challenge one another from the place of this is not who you are. This is not who you are. You don't have to live like this anymore. Challenge one another from a place of unity, from a place of identity. And as we do that, we build one another more tightly together. You know, I had a, a letter recently from someone who had a horrendous experience in a church. I mean, it was just like oh, miserable. I was reading it. I was like welling up reading this letter thinking, oh gosh, you know, this is why I lead churches. This is why I want to be involved with leading churches because this cannot carry on. This cannot carry on. And I emailed him back and I said, let's build a family that looks different to this. Is that what you want? Yeah. Let's build a family that looks different to this. Let's have a new experience of a community that looks radically different, that shines and that when people come in, they see people who love what the Holy Spirit loves. They love identity, they love family, and they love unity. As we go into 2016, whatever happened in 2015, live from that place, in a new place. Amen.